Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to the doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to the doctor. As we come to look at uh, the Apostle's answer to the statement made in the 19th verse of the 9th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, I'd better read once more the, that verse and the verses that follow. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O men, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now then, the objection is put in verse 19 to what the apostle had previously been teaching, and he deals with it. You remember that he first of all rebukes anybody for making such a statement and for being so foolish as not to realize that he's only a man and that he is speaking about the almighty God and his actions. He drives it home by reminding us still further that our relationship to God is the relationship of the thing formed to the one who forms it, plastic material to the artificer. And he takes it even further. He says that our relationship to God as formed humanity is the relationship of a lump of clay to a potter. And so he not only rebukes anyone who feels inclined to query and to question the righteousness and the justice of God in choosing some to salvation and in punishing the others, he rebukes it and he indeed ridicules it and demolishes it. But he goes further. He gives us a reason, as it were, why God does this, why God manifests his wrath upon the children of wrath and why he shows mercy to the children of mercy. Now, he does that in verses 22, 23, and 24. Last week, we dealt uh, with verse 22. And uh, there we saw that the apostle gives us God's reason for punishing the ungodly. And particularly, his reason for punishing the ungodly in the way that he does. We, see, we saw that in punishing the ungodly, God uh, seems to put a restraint upon everything that is in him that urges him to punish the ungodly. Willing, his whole being, desiring, urging him to manifest his wrath upon the children of disobedience, God, as it were, holds it back. He endures with long-suffering 
We've seen that in the case of Pharaoh, particular example of it, but it's to be seen so clearly in his dealings with the children of Israel over their long story and his dealing with individual characters that are put before us in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, it's a great mystery, this. But uh, it is something that is taught very frequently and in many places in the Scriptures. We have that statement that uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But our Lord himself made a remarkable statement about all this, and it's recorded in the 23rd chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, where he's addressing the Pharisees. And I begin to read at verse 34. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Now then, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. As if to say, and it is of course the teaching, that God didn't visit the full and the final punishment upon the children of Israel at the very moment when they committed their sin or their crime. There was only a kind of temporary punishment, a kind of installment of punishment. But God, as it were, has been treasuring it all up, holding it back. But now, he says, upon you, it is finally to be poured out. Now, that's a prophecy, of course, concerning what was going to happen to the children of Israel in A.D. 70. And it did. Their city was destroyed and they were thrown out, cast out amongst the nations. At last, the wrath of God has been revealed. The period of long suffering has come to an end. So you see, the teaching is there in our Lord's words to the Pharisees quite as plainly and as explicitly, indeed even more so, than it is in the statement of it that we're looking at here in this ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And so we saw last Friday that God has chosen to do this in order that certain things might be revealed. One, his compassion, that he doesn't take any pleasure in punishing the ungodly. Secondly, in order that he might render them utterly inexcusable because of the opportunities that he's given them. And thirdly, to make their punishment still more striking when it comes. The Jews had laughed at their prophets. They'd ridiculed them. And they'd gone on sinning. Prophets had been addressing them for at least eight centuries, but they paid no attention. Calamities came, still it made no difference. But at last it has come. And the destruction of Jerusalem, and what accompanied it in A.D. 70, is one of the most amazing and astonishing phenomena that the human race has ever witnessed. Well, God delays and shows this long-suffering for those three main reasons. But there is also a further reason, and it's to that we come tonight as we look at verse 23. Now, there is a good deal of disputation 
amongst the authorities as to the precise relation between verses 22 and 23. Are they two separate but parallel statements, or are they two parts of one statement? Is the apostle saying that on the one hand God does something in the manifestation of his wrath, and he does something else in the manifestation of his mercy? Or is he saying that verse 23 is a further explanation of verse 22? That God endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Well, it's a matter that uh, can't be decided and in a sense it really doesn't matter very much because the meaning is much the same in both cases. Both things, of course, are true. And I therefore propose to take it in both ways. I do think that one of the reasons for the long suffering which is manifested towards the vessels of wrath is that there might be this prolonged period of grace during which those who are to be saved shall be saved. There is a suggestion to that effect also in that statement in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, which we were considering together last Friday night. While God is enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, he is at the same time extending grace and mercy and compassion to those who are the vessels of mercy. The apostle, I suggest, is partly saying that, that it is at one and the same time a manifestation of his compassion toward the vessels of wrath and a manifestation of the riches of his grace to those who are the vessels of mercy. The same period contains the two things and the two elements. But I think it is also good and right that we should take them as separate statements and therefore take it like this, that the apostle is putting two questions. What if God did restrain for a while the manifestation of his wrath and the manifestation of his power? Which is two questions in one, of course. What if God does manifest his wrath and his power to these people in that way, exercising long-suffering before he does so? Then, the next question in verse 23. What if God does make known the riches of his glory in the vessels of mercy whom he has afore prepared unto glory. And therefore the ultimate question is this, what about it? What's wrong with it? What's your objection to it? Where is the injustice involved in it? And you see, in putting it in the form of a question like that, he is rarely supplying the answer. And the answer is this, and it's common to the two questions. Everything that God does is a revelation of some aspect or other of his being and of his character. Everything that God does. In punishing the ungodly, God manifests his wrath and his power, and at the same time his compassion because of the way in which he does it. 
but in, his, in showing mercy towards those who are to be saved, he shows the riches of his glory. Now, here it seems to me is the Apostle's great argument that God in all things, on the two sides, in the wrath and in the mercy, is, and the phrase you notice that he keeps on repeating is this, that he shows this. What if God willing to show his wrath? And in verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory. That's the object. God is all along making known to us, making plain to us. And indeed, we've already had this whole idea in verse 17. And you see, what he's dealing with here is the objection to what he taught in verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That's the thing. And what he's doing here is just repeating it and putting it to us in detail. The overriding object is that God is declaring, manifesting, showing, making plain certain aspects of his own eternal and glorious being. So what the apostle is asking is this, why shouldn't he? Where is the injustice involved? Where is the injustice of God showing his power and his wrath upon those who so richly deserve it, fitted to destruction? What's wrong about God showing, if he chooses, to show mercy to certain people when none of them at all deserve it? Where's the injustice? What's wrong? That's the answer. But now, as we are looking at the second one, uh, the manifestation of God's uh, riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, we must come and look at it in detail, because it is indeed a very wonderful and a very glorious statement. Now, the phrase, of course, that must arrest us at once is the riches of his glory. What if God, anxious to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared, does show mercy upon them? The riches of his glory. The theme, in other words, of verse 23 is this. That God's main purpose in salvation is to show and to make known the riches of his glory. Now, the ultimate truth about God, the ultimate attribute of God, if we may so speak, is his glory. We talk about the power of God, his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence and all these various other attributes. But of course, ultimately, what makes God God is his glory. You can't describe it. You can't define it. All the Bible itself does is to give us some kind of description of men and women who have had some glimpse of the glory of God and they fall to the ground and they feel utterly unworthy. Glory. The most essential attribute of God is his everlasting and eternal glory. What is glory? Well, all I know is this, that it's perfect light, perfect love. It baffles description. The glory of God. So that everything that God does is in some shape or form 
the manifestation of his glory. And yet, you notice this most interesting thing. The apostle does not put the manifestation of God's power and his wrath in terms of glory. He keeps that only to what he does in the manifestation of his mercy. Now, I'm emphasizing this for this reason. The glory of God is manifested in his power. The glory of God is manifested in his wrath. But the apostle is anxious that we should realize that if we want to know something really about the glory of God, well then, we've got to look at him as he manifests and shows his mercy to those upon whom he will have mercy. Now, here is something that has astounded the saints and has stimulated them throughout the centuries to express their wonder and their amazement. Listen to Samuel Davis, for instance, in his well-known hymn putting it. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are godlike, matchless, and divine, but the fair glories of thy grace more godlike and unrivaled shine. That's it. And uh, we've already had an illustration and an example of it in one of our hymns already this evening. That first hymn we sang has got this expression. For the grandeur of thy nature, grand beyond the seraph's thought, for created works of power, works with skill and kindness wrought, for thy providence, that governs through thine empire's wide domain, wings an angel, guides a sparrow, blessed be thy gentle reign, but thy rich, thy free redemption, dark through brightness all along, for it is poor and poor expression who dare sing that wondrous song. Precisely. The same idea is, is to be found there. And indeed, we had it also in our second hymn tonight, the hymn of Isaac Watts. Now to the Lord a noble song, awake my soul, awake my tongue. Hosanna to the eternal name, and all his boundless love proclaim. See where it shines in Jesus' face, the brightest image of his grace. God, in the person of his Son, has all his mightiest works outdone. The spacious earth and spreading flood proclaim the wise and powerful God, and thy rich glories from afar sparkle in every rolling star. Magnificent poetry, apart from its being truth, isn't it? But in his looks, a glory stands, the noblest labor of thy hands, the radiant luster of his eyes outshines the wonders of the sky. Now, that's the thing that the Apostle is saying here. And these men have just been trying to catch what he was saying and trying to repeat it in their own language and in their own day and generation. What it means, in other words, is this. That the salvation of a single soul is the most wonderful thing that God has ever done. He has surpassed and has eclipsed everything. All his ways are godlike, matchless, and divine. The creation, providence, all these things. 
The manifestation, I say, of his power over Pharaoh and his host. The manifestation of his wrath. All these things are manifestations of the glory of God. But they are nothing when you put them at the side of what God has done in the redemption of men. Even creation becomes nothing when you put it by the side of this. Providence is nothing. Punishment is nothing. Everything is eclipsed here. This, the Bible teaches us, is indeed the very wonder of heaven itself. And a thing that causes astonishment in heaven. Now, there it is expressed so wonderfully in the epistle to the Ephesians. In that second chapter, in verse 7 where the apostle says that he's quickened us and raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in heavenly places in order that the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That's how he's going to show this. The ages to come. God is going to show, he's showing it now, he says, he's going to show all succeeding generations and ages the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. You see, the riches of his glory. And all future generations are going to look on at this and be filled with amazement. But not only that, says the apostle, he goes further than that. It isn't all generations of men only that are going to be filled with amazement at God's glory in the redemption of men. This is something that even amazes and astonishes the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There it is, Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now, the principalities and powers in heavenly places in Ephesians 3.10 is a reference, of course, to the good angels and the archangels. God made them and they've spent all their lives in the presence of God. They've been there praising him, looking on. They've spent their time in the presence of God in the glory of heaven. But according to the apostle, God is going to show even them Something of his manifold wisdom, which they'd never seen before, in and through the church. In and through these people who are called here vessels of mercy. In us, the members of the body of Christ, those who are given the salvation and redemption. Even the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places are going to see something of the truth about the glory of God that they'd never seen before. Through us, the vessels of of mercy whom God had before prepared unto glory. Well now, this is the thing that the apostle is telling us here in this uh, 23rd verse of this ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. We must therefore look at this. The riches, he says, of his glory. And he means by that that there's no end to it. It can't be measured. Thought is poor and poor expression, says Robert Robinson, quite rightly. You can't express it. The apostle can't. He has to talk about the exceeding riches of his grace. He has to talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ. He has to talk about the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. 
the riches of his glory. Now, this is the thing you see, says the Apostle. This is, uh, God has shown all this in uh, showing mercy to those whom he saves. And here are some miserable creatures objecting, saying this isn't fair, this isn't just that some, some should be saved and others shouldn't. Oh, how blind they are to the riches of his glory. If they'd only had a glimpse of it, they'd be so filled with astonishment they wouldn't be able to say anything else. Well, now, let's follow him, then, as he leads us into this. The apostle is constantly saying this thing. It is in redeeming men, in redeeming those who are the vessels of mercy, that God really shows the ultimate truth about himself. Take, for instance, how the apostle puts it in writing his first epistle to the Corinthians. In the first chapter, Corinthians thought they were very clever, wanted to have more philosophy. Dear me, says the apostle, can't you see? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Then he goes on to say, the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, stumbling block, unto the Greeks, foolishness, always that crossness there. There's nothing there. It's a failure. It's nonsense. A carpenter dying on a cross, you say, that's salvation, utter foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's there he shows it. He shows his power and he shows his wisdom. But above everything else, in salvation, in redemption, he shows his love and he shows his grace. Now that's the thing the apostle has got in his mind here in this 23rd verse of ours. The riches of his glory. How does he show it? How can he say that God shows and makes known the riches of his glory in his dealings with these Vessels of mercy. Well, we must try to answer that question. And it's not difficult. The first answer is this. He shows the riches of his glory in saving us in the mere fact that he has anything at all to do with us or does anything at all about us. For we are all by nature the children of wrath even as others. Ephesians 2, 3. We are all by nature the children of the vessels of wrath. We are all by nature a part of that lump of clay, fallen humanity. When Adam sinned, we all sinned, for that all have sinned. Death came upon all because all sinned in Adam. There we are. We are all deserving of wrath. We are all hell-deserving sinners, every one of us. Of course, if you don't believe that, you'll know nothing about grace and you'll know nothing about the riches of God's glory. You can't hope to begin to understand, leave alone to measure the riches of his glory unless you know something about the depth of sin. And there it is. That's the truth about every one of us. But this is the message. 
that though that is the truth about us, God shows grace with respect to us. In other words, the measure of the riches of God's glory is his grace. What is grace? Grace is favor shown to those who are utterly and completely undeserving. That's the definition of grace. Grace is kindness shown to a man who deserves nothing but punishment. He deserves nothing at all, and yet though he deserves nothing, he is shown great favor. That's the meaning of the word grace. And the riches of God's glory is shown in his grace toward us. Now, I needn't keep you. The apostle has already told us this in this same epistle in chapter 5. Let me read it to you. Verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There it is. God commendeth his love toward us. God makes his love known to us. God manifests his grace to us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Now then, there is one beginning of our attempt to measure the riches of God's glory. I say it again, the fact that a single individual soul has ever been saved is due to one thing and one thing only, and that is the exceeding riches of God's grace. Nobody deserved it. Everybody deserved to go to hell. The fact that one is spared is to be accounted for only because of the unmeasurable, unsearchable riches of God's grace. Very well, there's the first answer. But let's go on. The riches of his glory are shown then uh, in this. I'm trying to put the steps in a logical manner. There is God in heaven. Here is creation and men as the Lord of creation. Man sins, forfeits every claim upon God, had been warned beforehand, and if he'd been immediately destroyed forever and forever, there would have been no ground of complaint. But God, I say, looked upon these vessels of mercy, in mercy and in grace. That's the first step. That's the first manifestation of the riches of his glory. But then, having done that, he now prepares a plan. He conceives a great purpose of saving out of this mass of fallen humanity, this mass of perdition, a people for himself. And here, of course, again, we are looking at the glory of God. 
It's inconceivable to us, of course. We can't imagine the thing because of our dullness and because of our slowness to apprehend these things. And yet, here it is. This is the very thing that we are told in the Scripture everywhere. That though God is in no way obligated to us, though he had lived, existed, in and of himself, the three persons in the Blessed Holy Trinity from eternity, without men, without creation at all, and was able to do so forever and forever, had he so chosen. This is what we are told. That the almighty, holy, blessed Trinity of persons became concerned about this fallen mass of humanity. And that in their eternal glory they had a council to contrive and conceive a plan whereby some should be saved. Now what we are told is this, not that God deputed this matter to some angels or archangels. This is the plan of God himself, the everlasting and eternal God, infinite in all his attributes, beyond measure of our understanding. He stoops even to consider this matter. But he does more than that. He evolved his great purpose. The thing we've been reading about in the previous chapter, in verse 28, them who are the called according to his purpose. He takes it up himself and he evolves his plan. The three persons in the Blessed Holy Trinity are involved, and this was all done, as we are told, before the foundation of the world. This is the hidden mystery before the foundation of the world. And we see the three blessed persons dividing this work and this plan up amongst themselves. It is the Father's plan, but it's got to be carried out. And the Son volunteers to be the executive agent. But then, after the work has been done, it needs to be applied, and the Holy Spirit volunteers to do the applying. Now, this is the division of the work of salvation amongst the three persons in the Blessed Holy Trinity, sometimes called the Economic Trinity, what it means is this, and this is the astounding thing, that the second person in the Trinity humbles himself, as it were, and makes himself subordinate to the Father. The three persons in the Trinity are co-equal. They're co-eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I and the Father are one. The three Persons in the Trinity are equal. But for the sake of your salvation and mine, that's the thing the Apostle's talking about. The Son subordinates himself to the Father. He says, here am I, send me. He became the servant, and he came in the form of a servant, and he's dependent upon his Father and all that was involved. But then in turn, the Holy Spirit subordinates himself to the Son and to the Father. The Spirit shall not speak of himself, which doesn't mean that he won't say things about himself so much as he's not going to originate things himself. He shall glorify me. And he will bring to your remembrance all that ever I said unto you. The Spirit, co-equal with the Son and the Father, subordinates himself to their task. Now, you see what the Apostle is trying to tell us is this. In the redemption of those who are redeemed, God is making known the riches of his glory. And there's something of it that the three persons in the Blessed Holy Trinity have gone to this trouble 
to make this plan to have this purpose that they have thus divided the labor amongst them and the Son and the Holy Spirit have subordinated themselves to the Father. What for? Well, that a single soul may be saved. The riches of his glory. We'd know nothing about this if, if these vessels of mercy were not saved. It is in knowing about salvation that we begin to know something about this. We'd know nothing about it otherwise. Now, you see, it can be worked out in all sorts of details. Did you notice how the Apostle put it there in the third chapter of Ephesians about himself, this bringing in of the Gentiles? He says this is a further manifestation of it, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when he read he may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, this mystery, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So that you see in every part and aspect of it, God is making known something further of the riches of his glory. Then the next step that I think we come to logically is this. The Old Testament preparation for all this. Because there it is. The Bible is the history of redemption. That's what it really amounts to. And all the history and all that you have about other nations, it comes in simply because it throws some light upon the history of redemption. Some foolish people would have us believe that the Old Testament is the history of men searching for God. It isn't. It's always the history of God searching for lost men. When God, as it were, came down from heaven into the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had fallen, that's the beginning of the history of redemption and all the rest. Just as reference to that. That's all. You see, this book isn't really a book primarily about this world and this life. It's a book about God's people, about these vessels of mercy and what God is doing about them and his object and his purpose. And so uh, the history of this world is only incidental. This world's going to be destroyed. There'll be a new world for these people. But you have, therefore, references to this world simply because it comes in to the history of redemption and the history of God's people which is preparing for himself. And all this is a manifestation and a making known of the riches of God's glory. So I say you find it in the Old Testament. What you find? Well, this is what you find in its essence. God makes that announcement in the Garden of Eden about his purpose. And what you find in the Old Testament is just the outworking of that one great purpose. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. That's the purpose. It's going to happen. And now you see this as a line running right through the Old Testament story. Sometimes you've almost lost it, but back it comes. It's always there. It goes right away through. You see it, for instance, in Abel rather than Cain. You see it in Seth, the son of Adam and Eve. Then all sorts of things happen, but you see it in Noah. And you see it in one of the sons of Noah, Shem. This line being worked out and pursued and as you see it, you're amazed at the glory of God 
and the wonder of his ways and how he keeps his purpose going. And then you come to Abram, of course. And then, as we've seen, to Isaac rather than Ishmael and then Jacob rather than Esau. And on and on it goes. Judah. And then it seems to be lost almost entirely at times, but there it is all along. It stands out so clearly and so plainly. And where you see the special glory of it all, of course, is in this respect. That in spite of the folly and the sin and the recalcitrance of these very people whom God has chosen, in spite of their idolatry and their backsliding, in spite of everything that is true of them, God keeps the purpose going. And in doing this, he shows us the glory and the wonder of his ways. Now, perhaps this is seen most clearly of all in the case of certain particular individuals. And I simply mention two of them as I close this evening. Look at a man like Jacob. Who of us would ever have thought that Jacob was the man to be chosen? You'd have chosen Esau, wouldn't you? Seems a much nicer man, much kinder, generous, the other men scheming, underhanded, sly, and all the rest of it. But you see, Jacob is God's man, and God makes something of him. You see, it isn't affability that matters in the sight of God. It isn't a mere bucolic kind of animal kind of stolidity and niceness that matters. It's character, it's understanding, it is knowledge of the purposes of God and putting these into the first position. So God shows his glory in taking a man like Jacob and making of him his men through whom the promise is to be sent on and is to be continued. And you get much the same thing as you read the life story of a man like David. David fell into terrible and most grievous sin. But he is the man after God's heart. And in all this, and in other individuals in exactly the same way, God in that Old Testament preparation is showing us something of the riches of his glory. Well, I'm afraid we've got to leave it, as I say, at that for tonight. We haven't finished it. We haven't exhausted it by any means. But I'm just trying to show you this thing which the Apostle puts before us in this most extraordinary manner. He throws in this phrase, the riches of his glory. I wonder whether we've ever troubled to work that out and to see what he means by it. Well, there it is. There is the beginning of it. And God willing, next Friday night we'll continue with our unfolding of the riches of God's glory as it has been made known in the redemption of the vessels of mercy which God hath afore prepared unto glory. I can't refrain from asking my question before we come to next Friday night. Does anybody object to all this? Does anybody feel still that this is unjust? Is it wrong that God should show the riches of his glory in this way? You still troubled with your little questions?
I can't see this, I can't do this. You're still saying things like that? Well, not only have I failed completely tonight, if you still are feeling like that, I wonder whether you know anything at all about the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The riches of his glory. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come before thee with a sense of shame and yet a sense of glory. Shame at our own smallness, shame at our folly, shame at our pride of intellect, shame at our slowness to learn and at our dullness. O God, we realize that we would be altogether undone were it not that with thee there is mercy that thou mayest be feared, were it not for the riches of thy glory. O God, by thy blessed Spirit, open our eyes to see more and more of the riches of the glory and of thy grace. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall be in the glory. Amen. hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.